One of the NHL's top goaltenders has opted out of the upcoming Beijing Winter Games. Meantime, the Leafs-Jets skirmish has cost Jason Spezza six games and caused a storm on Twitter about officiating. Plus, Ben Bishop's career has ended abruptly, according to Stars GM Jim Nill. Then, after those appetizers, we get to a pair of main courses. The Canucks and Flyers both made changes. Question is, will they work? Episode 298 of the Lace Up Podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Dubuff. We are heading overseas, sort of, to talk about the Beijing games, and Robin Leonard won't be a part of it, and it's his call. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if Robin Leonard isn't the only one who is going to opt out of the Olympics, which I guess is the, uh, the announcement here. Um, but it's kind of a huge blow to Team Sweden. Um, however, he cites that there were concerns about um, about him going all the way to China and, and playing there. Uh, the main one being that, like, um, if if they get if any player gets COVID while they're in China, then they'll have to be quarantined for fourteen days, and um, and at that point, you're going to miss a you know a like at least a week um, of the NHL season because you're just stuck in China. So um, so that's something that has to be figured out. That's also something that the apparently the NHL and NHLPA is uh, talking about it now, if it's even worth it. What is interesting, though, about this whole thing is, is that the last time the NHL like opted out of the Olympics, it was just weird because I, I think it was in a wasn't it in South Korea or something um, and you know it was all thought of to be the because um, you know there's not really a market um, that the NHL really needs to like be in South Korea but it would be huge if that you know we all thought like okay that's okay they're probably just saving it to go to China um, and now that it's in China however, it's like there's all this other stuff with the COVID stuff that you have to figure out. Um, the fact that the NHL has already postponed some games here uh, due to COVID. Um, so, like, it, it's not official official yet that they're going to the Olympics. But I I would not be shocked uh, to find out that they opted out of the Olympics uh, this year. I think part of the reason why they announced that they were going to the Olympics not just the fact that, you know, it's a great business opportunity mm. and it's a great opportunity to grow the game because this is probably the last chance for Crosby and Ovechkin and Malkin, the the superstars of that generation in their prime to go for Olympic gold. Yep. This is probably their last kick at the can. And Ovechkin, the gold medal, Olympic gold is right up there with the Stanley Cup. He wants that bad. 
-hmm. he wants to be a part of that Russian team so bad. He wants to bring the gold medal, Olympic gold, back to Russia, which is funny because the the year where the NHL doesn't take part, Russia narrowly beats Germany in overtime to win gold. And the Germans weren't expected to do much of anything in that tournament. So I, I think for the best on best scenario, this is a golden opportunity to not only showcase the last kick of the can for guys like Crosby, Ovechkin, and Malkin, but also the new wave of talent that have never played in the Olympics before. Yeah. Guys like Connor McDavid and, Austin you know, Matthews. if he's healthy enough, Jack Eichel. But even then, you still have Johnny Goudreau. You have Austin Leon Dreisaitl playing for Germany. You forgot. And, and all of those guys that you mentioned. Sorry, Brett? Well, I was just saying that you're you're missing the obvious Austin Matthews. Yes. And also the last kick of the can for Patrice Bergeron. He's yep. probably in the mix, too. True, true. Um, but, but you get the point where, like, this is the best crossroads scenario for the old and the new to clash in a best-on-best -best scenario. This is probably it. Yep. So the NHL thinks obviously from a business standpoint that it makes sense but think of all of those talented players going to china going overseas potentially getting covid we could see multiple outbreaks across the league you've seen what it's done to the ahl where like in the neighborhood of six seven eight teams all at once have covid outbreaks yep. like that would kill the rest of the NHL season, possibly the whole playoffs, the idea of a normal season would be wiped out at that point. And I think the NHL is looking at that um, COVID uh, scenario in China, coupled with the Omicron variant uh, that's emerged. And they're just like, I mean, we love to go, but is it really worth it? Is it yeah. really worth sacrificing a couple of weeks of our season, potentially risking our star players getting COVID, and then just this big COVID aftermath potentially smacking down upon us and wrecking the rest of our season? Is it worth all of that just to go to the Olympics? They could save um, they could save their shots for 2026 um if, if they really wanted to and there's also some human rights criticisms for china as right, well right. i believe the united states government has issued a diplomatic boycott this past week canada did the same but for the nhl that has less to do with it it's more is covid going to wreck our season if we do this and that's that's the big fear now robin leonard not being on team sweden is a big blow, as you mentioned, Brett, for Team Sweden's goaltending. Here are the goaltenders not named Robin Leonard this season. Jacob Markstrom, obviously the slam dunk choice to be the starter now. 10-6-5 is his record in 21 games. 9.33 save percentage, 1.94 GAA, 5 shutouts. And even has a, one assist to go with that. Pretty impressive numbers. The next best guy is Linus Olmark, who... At times has been very good, at times hasn't been for Boston. His record is 7-4-0 in 11 starts, 2.56 goals against, 921 save percentage. And then we have these three names. Anton Forsberg, who is in most cases a third-string goalie, 5-4-0 record, one shutout against Brian Elliott and the Tampa Bay Lightning, 3.34 goals against, 904 save percentage. Philip Gustafson, 3-7-1, also with the Sens, 
3.78 goals against, 893 save percentage. And Jonas Johansson on a highly potent Colorado Avalanche team is 3-2-1 with a 3.73 goals against and an 885 save percentage. That is slim pickings right there. Yep. That Swedish team needs Robin Leonard more than anything. And they might have the offense, they might have the defense, but if they get an average Jacob Markstrom, they could easily get demolished in this tournament. Uh, if it happens. To be fair, Olmark has been a lot better than he has early on in the season. So I I mean he he wouldn't be a bad backup option for sure. Um but and as for the other stuff that you were saying, the um, but yes, of course, like Sweden is hurt by this uh, because they pretty much only have one Swedish goalie. Not to mention, like I mean, I guess Lundqvist probably wouldn't have played anyways. But um, Lundqvist is another huge loss for them as well. Um, and it's also like I don't think Leonard is having the best season right now, so. Maybe that that's also has something to do with it, but I do appreciate the fact that like he's 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 kind of become this like voice of the voiceless for NHL players because he you know he called out all, all those like um, uh, uh, coaches and how they perform do the medication stuff uh, just before the season started um, and things like that. So he's clearly been like uh, he, you know he's not afraid to speak his mind and you know i think that that's something that all the, every player in this league need we need more of those uh so so that's that's good on him for for at least uh doing that um and then as for the other stuff that you said um yeah it would kind of like suck to like you know is like this will be crosby's last shot at the can ovechkin's last shot at the can but it would be kind of like it's also kind of like you know, I'm, I would like, even though obviously I'm not Canadian, but it would have been cool to see like Crosby and McDavid being on the same team. Um, just from like mm -hmm. a hockey perspective, it's just like, that's something that we'll never get to really see. Um, so, so that would be kind of cool. Um, and you know, for, I guess if you put it to American standpoint, it's like Austin Matthews, um, and maybe I guess Jack Eichel is probably not going to play, but like, even if you take like, I don't think Johnny Goudreau has been in the uh, Olympics before, um, but like it's this is probably the last time that they're gonna be on the same team with Patrick King, um, and yep. so uh, so yeah, and and also especially for I think Team USA has like probably the best gold U.S. goaltenders uh, now. Jack Campbell is is basically the early Vezina favorite right now. Um, of course they have Connor Hellebuck as well. So it's like, um, if, if there's like, even like, you know, you have good goalies when Connor Hellebuck may not be your starter. Um, so, um, so that's, that's kind of like, you know, that was something that I was kind of looking forward to, but at the same time, like I, I was, you know, I'm definitely disappointed still if they do decide to opt out of this Olympics. But like as opposed to lat like four years ago when they didn't uh, go to South Korea, like at least this time they have a legitimate reason for for not going, um, and and you know I can understand it, um, and maybe we'll get it like another World Cup type thing, um, sometime in the summer or something like that, or just like somewhere that's here in America so that we do see. Um, Crosby and 
uh, and McDavid on the same team. And maybe Eichel will be healthy enough that we'll be able to see him. Of course, it's not going to be the same, and that was the same case as the last time when we had the World Cup, but it could be a good compromise to like be like, okay, we can see all these players on the same team, but it's like it's a much safer environment because the NHL is running it. Um, and it's all like in in the states or you know in Canada uh, when um, it's not um, and, and you know when it's after the season uh, is over, so you don't have to worry about like players getting COVID and, and whatnot um, as much. Um, For sure. All right. Uh, the other stuff that has happened. Um, so, so there was an incident um, in, uh, I forget exactly what day it was. I think it was actually Sunday when we were recording. Yeah, it was last Sunday. Yeah, okay. a week from today. So what happened was uh, Neil Pionk uh, kneed uh, Rasmus Sandin. Um, it was a knee-on-knee collision. And, um, and it looked like Rasmus Sandin is going to be injured. It, it's unclear about his timetable, but it, he is injured. Um, uh, and, two, two to three weeks. Uh, but the good oh. news is there was no structural damage to his right knee. So okay. it could have been worse, so um, like but he's, he's out okay. two to three weeks. It should also be mentioned that Dermot and Marner are also injured. So, right. uh, add so further a... insults uh, to the least injury problems there. Right. But, uh, Sandine's had a pretty good season, uh, and tough to see him go down like that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. He was finally coming into his own. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so he, he's been injured, but that like rightfully, upset a bunch of Leafs players to the point where uh, Spezza um, got into this incident with uh, Neil Pionk and he knees him in the head. Um, so uh, so it was even dirtier than <laughs> the initial hit. Um, yeah, head, uh, Pionk's head, I think, was at, like, ice level. So, yeah. like, he had to reach to get Pionk's head. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty crazy. I mean, it was, like, impressive in its own way, as weird as that is to say. Um, but uh, <laughs> In a very bad way, yeah, it was yeah, yeah, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> it was impressive. Um, but, um, but Neil Pionk gets suspended for two games, and Spezza gets suspended for six games. Um, I think these are kind of fair punishments. But what was interesting was like afterwards on Twitter, like a bunch of Leaf fans were saying that like like we're threatening Neil Pionk's life and just like thinking that Spezza shouldn't have gotten anything, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, uh, because it's like yeah, Spezza like you should be consistent. Like Spezza shouldn't have done that. Of course, Pionk shouldn't have done what he did, but. Um, but it was just, it, it just shows how crazy Leafs fans are. But at the same time, if this happened to the Bruins, I would imagine they'd get equally as crazy. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, I, I guess it's a fair punishment. Um, like I was saying that the Spezza knee was a lot more dirty than the Pionk knee, but like, you know, I, I guess that's like, you know, it's a way to kind of, uh, get rid of those like those incidents that happen so it's not another uh claude lemieux type thing or um um even like a bertuzzi more type situation so um so I, I i think if it can mitigate the like it getting even worse um i think that's a that's a good thing that they're at least suspending players and in showing and in, in taking a stance that those things aren't okay 
And the problem is the Department of Player Safety, their callings have been so inconsistent. That's what annoys me the most. Right. In this case, they got it right on the nose. Yep. Two games for Pionk, six games for Spezza. I agree with both. And I totally get that Jason Spezza is trying to defend his guy, one of the Leafs' youngest players. But you can't do that. Nope. Especially when you consider that Spets is nearing his 40s. He's been around the game. He knows better. If Jason Spets did that in his mid-20s, I think the NHL might explode. Because <laughs> that's so unlike Jason. Yeah. Not like him to do something like that. But but it's uncalled for, and you should be suspended. And good on the NHL for, uh, for dishing out that six-game suspension. It was well-deserved. Jason, Jason earned that. And he deserves to sit out uh, the amount of games that he's sitting. I just wonder again, where was this when Tom Wilson ragdolled Panarin? Yep, that's like, a good point. That you, you that gets a five thousand dollar fine. You're perfectly fine with that, and this gets six games. Like, wh- what's the difference there? Yeah. Both are equally uncalled for. Have no place in the game. Shouldn't happen. Suspension for both, right? One gets a five k fine. The other gets six games. That again, the inconsistency is what annoys me. What also annoys me is what led to this moment because Pierre-Luc Dubois was doing some shady things out there on the ice that the Leafs uh, bench didn't like, um, that Leafs fans, I'm sure, hated just as much, if not more, than the Leafs players. And when you have that much tension boiling in a hockey arena where Players are getting irritated. The fans are getting irritated. Poorly officiated game. And everything starts to boil over. You get incidents like this. And I think uh, Steve Dangle summarized it perfectly in his breakdown of that Leafs-Jets game uh, of that Leafs-Jets game last Sunday. How important game management really is. And monitoring the temperature of said games so they don't get out of reach. The refs let that game get out of reach, and that can't happen. Or else you get risky plays like Spets on Pionk. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so last thing before we get to our main topic. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it appears that, or not appears, but uh, Ben Bishop, who hasn't played in two years, uh, he made his AHL conditioning stint um, on Saturday. Um, he let in like eight goals on like, I think 20 shots or something like that. And it, it looks like he re-injured his knee that had been aggravating him for two years, as I mentioned. Um, and then uh, the next day he just, uh, I guess he told Jim Nil that he can't play anymore because uh, it, it looks like the surgery just, you know, it, it's, it's not going to be healthy for him. So, so yeah, he's going to, he has two more years left on his contract. He's going to be put on LTIR. I think there's going to be more, like he's going to make a statement on Tuesday. So that's, um, we'll, we'll find more information, but if Jim Neal has made it public that he is uh, going to be um, gone for, for two years and we shouldn't expect him to play at all. And he's, He's technically not retired, but he is retired. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm looking here. Bishop had uh, played in 11 years. 
Um, you even played one of seven games for the LA Kings. Do you remember that? That's crazy. Um, yeah, I remember he was well because he was traded from Tampa Bay uh, to LA. Uh, I think that was the year Quick was hurt and they were riding oh, right. Peter Budai for a fair bit, and they missed the playoffs even still. Yeah, and then he signed with the Dallas in the offseason. Yeah. I was just looking at hockey references. Like he played for the Kings. Um, so he. Uh, yeah, he I think put- uh, I think uh, Tampa Bay traded a pro i think they traded uh I'll, I'll actually check what that trade was you continue with ben bishop right. we'll get back to you on that trade because this is a sure. pretty interesting one sure uh so of of course he, he started off uh playing for st louis uh then he goes to ottawa for two years and he was decent for ottawa then he gets traded to tampa um and uh that was when he had his first real run in the playoffs um against in Tampa uh but like I think he was like there were two games shy of winning the the cup that year I believe that was the Blackhawks um last Stanley Cup that they won um and um and then he um after a couple more years in Tampa um he played he goes to Dallas and as (laughs) as we just were talking about he goes to LA for a little bit but then he uh, plays for Dallas. He was actually really good in the 2018-2019 season. He had a 9.34 save percentage and a 1.98 GAA. Um, and he even he went. He was a runner-up for the Vezina that year. Um, he was apparently a runner-up for the Vezina two, in two seasons. One was which I had mentioned before uh, when he uh, he made that run with Tampa. Um, and then he he finished third in the Vezina uh, uh, two years before that with Tampa as well. Um, And then, um, yeah, and I I just remember like even uh, that year in the playoffs, it seemed like Dallas, like like it was only just Bishop and Bishop was the main reason why Dallas had played, gotten into 13 games um, at that point. Um, He did play a couple of games in the bubble for Dallas, but he, you know, it was primarily Kudobin who was the starter there. Um, yeah, he had a he had a great career. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna miss him because he, you know, I, I just always remember the fact that like he was like six seven. Um, he's like a huge guy um, and two ten pounds, uh, so that's pretty light considering. But like, it's just. Um, yeah, it's just a great career. He finished with a 921 save percentage and a 2.32 GAA with a record of 20, uh, 222 um, with losses of 128 and um, I guess the loser point of 36. Uh, so um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty good. He ended with a winning record um, and a save percentage of 921. Um, I think that's pretty good. I don't think... Um, it's good enough to be in the Hall of Fame, but I, I think there was a considerate amount of times when he was absolutely dominant um, as a goalie, and he was considered like top three goalies in the league uh, for for a considerable amount of time. But yeah, I don't think it's good enough to make him in the Hall. Maybe eventually, if there's like a a year where it's like there isn't too many good candidates, maybe he'll make it then. But I, I don't think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. 
it won't be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think he'll be like Daniel Alfredson, where like a couple years down the line, he'll find his way in there. Um, because he was a very good goalie. He had a couple of Vesna-worthy seasons. He was the guy in Tampa Bay before Vasilevsky was even considered uh, a potential successor to him. And um, a guy who also mentored uh, Vasilevsky had some good times uh, in Ottawa as well and helped turn Tampa Bay into that contender before they had Vasilevsky. Bishop was their guy, and they went to the 2015 finals largely because of Ben Bishop. So he, he played uh, an integral part on uh, a lot of the teams that he played, and that can't be underestimated. Uh, just turned 35, six foot seven, obviously a very big guy. Um, and obviously you hate to, to have someone's career just cut short by injuries like that. Here are his final stat lines, his final three games in the bubble. There was, I believe, um, a round-robin game against Vegas where he gave up four goals on 32 shots, took the loss there. Uh, August 13th against Calgary, I believe that was uh, in the first-round series. Um, he he was charged with four goals against on 26 shots, uh, somehow got the win in that one. And then uh, August uh, the 31st, actually, that game against Calgary, I wonder if that was... What? No, 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 no. That wasn't the game where Dallas scored a bunch of goals and stormed back. I don't think it was that one. Um, August 31st against Colorado, that was his final game. Gave up four goals and 19 shots in just 13, 43 of ice time for the Hugh Dobin. But whatever the case may be, uh, the Stars lost that game. Fortunately, ended up winning the series and uh, ended up going to the finals. But like you said, Brett, it was largely on the back of uh, – Hugh Dobin there. Um, and then before that, um, his final regular season game was uh, March 10th. It was a game against the Rangers, four goals against on 27 shots. He actually ended the regular season on a four-game skid. So his last regular season win was February 19th against Arizona, long before they decided to blow it up. And he stopped 39 of 41 uh, to get the win in that, that one. So February 19th, 2020 ended up being uh, his final regular season NHL win. Finishes with 222 wins and a career, like you said, a career best, um, um, or I guess an overall career 921 save percentage, which I'm interested to see where that ranks all time in terms of games played, in terms of all of the NHL uh, goaltenders that have played as many games as he did. He started 397 games, so that's almost 400 games, and most of that as the clear-cut starter on his team. So, had a very good career. Um, and given his size, you don't you don't see uh, too many of those big mobile goalies um, yeah. make waves as much as he did. Like you look at guys like, for example, Anders Nielsen and Miko Koskinen. It's not necessarily bigger is always better, taller is always better when it comes to goaltending. You have to be uh, good athletically um, in, from an endurance perspective as well um, to have a very lengthy NHL career. And Bishop and Vasilevsky in that regard are very rare breeds for hockey goaltenders. Um, so obviously going to miss Big Ben was a great goaltender for a number of years and a valuable member of his team. Um, and it, it, it really got me thinking 
when the stars didn't protect him in the expansion draft and the fact that they also signed Braden Holtby right. and the kind of season Jake Ettinger had, it really got me thinking, how bad is this injury really? Yeah. Like, is this career threatening? And um, obviously it was pretty bad or else yeah. um, he'd probably still be playing. I mean, obviously it was career threatening because uh, at that point he hadn't played in a year. So it's like uh, mm-hmm. uh, we kind of knew it was serious. Yeah, and I think the writing was on the wall. It's like, how are they going to even manage it, even if Ben Bishop is healthy? But what was interesting, too, is like he did try to play um, in the AHL. So, like, you know, kudos for that just for the effort alone. Um, so it's like uh, there's something like that there's something to that but um but yeah it's, it's it is kind of sad that he can't play anymore but of course it's like I, I would rather him not be able to walk uh for the rest of his life instead of uh, playing this game so um i also i i don't know if you uh did mention it but i did look up all of the trades that he has and it, so he's been traded four times mm-hmm. Um, and he's been on the winning side of each of these trades. Um, so he was traded from St. Louis to Ottawa for a second round pick. Uh, LA, uh, St. Louis tra- uh, gets picks uh, Tommy Vanali, so, who I don't even think played in the NHL. Then he gets traded from Ottawa to Tampa, and I'm sure you are aware of this trade, because uh, then Ottawa gets Con- Corey Conacher and uh, Tobias Lindbergh in the draft. Um, which was a fourth round pick, um, and neither one really made it in the uh, uh, NHL. Although Conacher had like a little bit of a moments every now and then, but um, I would say mm-hmm. uh, I think I think you would agree Tampa won that trade. Um, and then um, and then he was uh, traded from Tampa to LA, like we just mentioned, uh, with a fifth round pick in 2017, which turned into Drake Reemstra. For Peter Budai, Eric Chernak, um, a conditional pick in the 2017 draft, and a seventh round pick, which actually turned into Wyatt Kalunik. Uh, Wyatt Kalunik might actually be something, but uh, he's in Chicago, so not in Tampa. I guess that's one where it's like Eric Chernak is actually decent. But, yeah. But, I would say Tampa won that trade when you consider that yeah. after that trade, Bishop really didn't play much for the Kings. Yeah, I guess that's a fair point. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think I would still rather have Ben Bishop than Eric Chernak. But, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. Um, and then uh, and then LA goes, uh, and then the L.A. trade to Dallas was for a fourth-round pick in the uh, 2017 draft and that was for Marcus Phillips and I don't think he's played a game in the NHL yet so um yeah I guess maybe you're right the the Tampa to LA maybe I guess you have a point that Tampa may have won that trade but I don't know I I I think I would rather have Ben Bishop than uh what's what's an interesting uh which is an interesting side note is that um there were two names um, that were part of the Wayne Gretzky trade tree, and Steve Dangle broke this down in his video. And they were Marcus Phillips and Drake Rimshaw. So oh, wow. Ben Bishop is in a, in a way tied to that Wayne Gretzky trade tree. Okay. Drake Rimshaw is no longer with the Kings, leaving Marcus Phillips as the only remaining active piece on the Kings side of the Gretzky trade tree. Wow. And the Edmonton side is done. 
So yeah. for that reason alone, um, hopefully Marcus Phillips makes a big name for himself or the Kings turn that into an embarrassment of riches somehow. Um, so just thought I'd throw that out there. Ben Bishop is in a way tied to the Gretzky trade tree. I love how you remembered a, a trade tree. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember those two players specifically because that's yeah, the only reason that trade tree like is still those alive. Two, like, especially those two very obscure players. <laughs> Well, Drake Grimshaw played for the 67, so I have heard yeah. of him. Well, yeah, that, that, that was also like a part of it when I was like evaluating these trades because that's a big thing from Steve Dingle's videos is that like it's more impressive of how many games those players have played and not if they scored or if they like won games as a goalie or whatnot. But um, mm -hmm. so I guess in that sense, then, yeah, you're probably right that Tampa won that trade because Eric Chernak has been a defenseman for them and played a lot of games for them. Whereas like you didn't yeah, really, and, and know, still with the team. Yeah. And still with the team. Um, okay. Anyways, now stopping We're we're now back to current NHL, um, instead of talking about trade trees. Um, so there's been, uh, there's two coaches firings and one GM firing, um, that happened this week. Um, so the first one is a GM and a coach being fired. That's Jim Benning, the GM, and Travis Green, the coach, being fired. Um, it was originally reported that Bruce Boudreau was going to come in at Travis Green, and it looked like Jim Benning's job was safe for some reason. Um, and then Jim Benning um, was fired, I think, the next day, um, or, may or maybe he was, or like a couple hours later, maybe. Um, and, yeah, um, late into the night, probably, yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, so I was just looking at the stats here for Travis Green. Um, he had uh, he had a record. He played or he coached Vancouver for five years. I thought it was like a four-year thing, but I guess it was five years. Um, he went uh, one third. He had a winning record. Oh, no, a losing record of um, 133, 147, and 34. Um, he only has made the playoffs once and that was in the, uh, that was in the, uh, the bubble where he lost to, in the second round to Vegas. But other than that, he, he missed the playoffs. Um, and then he gets fired this time. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I, I think, and then Jim Benning has, I think he's, he's been the GM for even longer than, than in five years but um but yeah he made jim benny made that trade to get uh connor garland in oel um he also was uh you know um he drafted guys like elias Pettersson, brock besser and quinn hughes although there was rumors that um that like uh uh jim benny wanted like a couple of other players instead of uh, Elias Pedersen at the time, and I think there was like uh, this. His scouts wanted Pod Coles in, and that's um, um, mostly what he did, or that's who he did draft. But then, it, like, um, he wanted to draft Broberg, um, which went right after him, um, or like there was some other like prospect I forget who. Um, so there was that whole thing, and then all of the scouts left basically, or got fired because they were fed up with him. Um, so, so yeah, maybe I, I, I feel like the reason why Vancouver hasn't been as good 
right now is because of um, because Peters, guys like Pedersen and Brock Besser haven't been have been underperforming. Um, JT Miller and Quinn Hughes have been great, um, but um, but yeah, and and there were some reports and speculation that there's like a huge um, like there's a fight between Bo Horvat and JT Miller in the locker room, and that like uh, Lies Pedersen and Quinn Hughes are like egomaniacs or something like that, um, which I'm not sure if I truly buy, uh, but. Um, but the, you know, rumors are out there and sometimes they are true. Um, so, so maybe there is something to that. Um, but, um, but yeah, so like, you know, if there are reports that there are culture issues, I feel like that's more of an, uh, coaching, um, failure than a GM failure. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, the GM traded for all the for all these guys that he traded for, and he drafted all these guys that he drafted for. So it is his job to see what, uh, you know, to get the right culture as well. So I guess it makes sense if all those things are true that there is like a, a divide in the locker room. Then yeah, maybe uh, there was a reason to to get rid of both of them and and just start anew. Especially when you have a guy like Bruce Boudreau. Sure, he doesn't win Game 7s and hasn't won a cup yet, but there is one thing that he consistently does, and that is make the playoffs. And that's exactly what the Canucks need. They are a talented team. They just have a couple of struggling players at the moment. And I think, like, once Pedersen... I, I think there is probably more to Pedersen. Like, he might be... Um, I, I th he did have surgery last year and, and he, uh, you know, he, he missed most of the preseason because of his contract stuff. So maybe that has something to do with it. Um, so, but like, I, I feel like there is a chance that, uh, you know, the Canucks could, could come back. They just, and, and I saw them play this past week when they were playing the Bruins, they look like a completely different team now. And, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with Bruce Boudreaux just putting them into gear. And it's just impressive that like Bruce Boudreaux hasn't been in the league for about like three seasons now. Um, and he's a really good coach. It, it, like he shouldn't have taken that long of a break. I can understand him maybe being out of the league for at least one year, but not two years or three years. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I think, um, I, I, I think Vancouver did the, made the right moves um, and all that stuff. And we'll, we'll talk about if they can salvage their season and, and what direction they'll take. But I guess what, what is your general reaction and was this the right move? Well, getting back to the dysfunction within the Canucks, the supposed dysfunction with the Canucks, there was a point in a practice where Brock Besser and Travis Green were chatting and there was a point around that time where JT Miller was heard saying or yelling, we have no idea what we're doing. Right. That's a red flag right there. When the players say, we don't know what we're doing. And the coach has been there for a couple of years and the GM has trusted that coach and the owner has trusted that coach. And the players look disorganized and confused and not sure what to do. That's not good news, especially when the team is struggling. So I believe that more than the other stuff. Um, and I, th I think just based on that and um, the demeanor of Travis Green with some of those losses, 
um, that came before his dismissal by the team. Um, it, it looked like the writing was on the wall for a couple of weeks, at least for Travis Green. For Jim Benning, the writing was on the wall for a couple of years now. Like, you look at the Canucks track record. What have they done with Jim Benning? Yeah. Like, he comes in as GM in, I think it was May of 2014. Okay. Yeah. They make the playoffs in 2015. And the next time they make the playoffs is what? The 2020 bubble? Yep. Where they have to go through a play in against Minnesota, who was basically getting rid of a lot of players. And they managed to eke out a 3 1 win. They were able to upset St. Louis, sure. And they almost upset Vegas on the back of Thatcher Demko, sure. Um, and the second round against Vegas, that was a close one. But they relied on goaltending heavily throughout that year. And then the rest of their flaws got exposed in the ensuing shortened season uh, last year. And then this year, the the bleeding didn't stop. It, it, it kept flowing. Yeah. So... I, I I think the big thing that sunk Jim Benning was how his master plan shaped up. Mostly through free agency. Like, you want to talk about blunders? Louis Erickson, 6 by 6 yep, July 1st, 2016. You look at Tyler Myers, 5 by 6 Awful lot of term. Myers has been okay. But at the same time... Has he been really their best shutdown defenseman? At times, you can debate that he's not. Uh, you look at the likes of Radim Verbata, two by five, and that contract really didn't age well. He was he was near the final days of his career, and they gave him a two by five contract. Not great. Thatcher Demko, Connor Garland, Chris Tanev, back in 2015. Those aren't bad signings. I like those signings. The Holpe contract, it was a two by 4.3, and they bought him out after the first year. So they have another uh, year and a bit to pay the rest of that buyout out. You have Erica Branson signing a three by four that aged poorly. Um, there was one time where they gave, gave Lucas Pisa three by 3.6. That wasn't great. Mikhail Furlan, four by 3.5, yep. not great either. Sven Berchi, 3 by 3.66 didn't age well. They stashed him in the minors for a couple of years. That that wasn't a good one. There was uh, Sam Gagne, 3 by 3.15 You can get the trend. The bottom six players, you look at Roussel, you look at Beagle as other examples um, that he recently got rid of. Uh, Derek Dorsett, maybe you could throw his name into that conversation. He got a 4 by 2.65 which I think is a bit of an overpay as well. I don't think he really did enough with this roster to put them over the top. And this is a guy that said two years ago that this team ideally would have a plan to be contenders by then. And literally a couple of weeks ago, he was asked, why is the team not performing to expectations? He's like, I don't know what's wrong with the team. I'm just like, dude, you created it. Yeah. This is your team. You assembled it. You signed the guys in free agency. You traded for OEL. You traded for Connor Garland. What do you mean you don't know what's wrong? You're the guy with all the answers, supposedly. If you can't figure it out now, what makes you think you can figure it out in a month from now? 
or next offseason when they give you more money to spend, hopefully right. wisely. It, it was a long time coming for Jim Benning. And the way that this was orchestrated, it wasn't like Jeff Molson and the Habs where a plan was in place to find a replacement. They had a GM by committee that included the likes of Stan Smeal leading the charge, but also the Sedin twins and a couple of other guys entering the picture. And then most recently they hired Jim Rutherford as president of hockey ops, but he's the interim GM. He's not the guy either. If they had a guy in place, they would have brought him in instantly right away. And we know who the replacement is for Jim Benning. I think Aquilini, Francesco Aquilini, the Canucks owner, did have faith in Travis Green, as he showcased about a month ago when they met, when Benning, Green, and those two guys met with him. I think he had faith in both men to right the ship. But as things started to unravel and the losses started to pile up and that conversation between Besser and Green and then JT Miller intervening, when that happened, it was like, man, if you don't intervene soon enough, stuff is going to hit the fan and this season's going to sell it go south very very fast so i think aquilini had no choice but to act yeah i'm actually looking at the nhl trade tracker of all of jim benning's trades the only one that i can say well i guess there were two clear wins for on his part uh one was uh when he traded away ryan kessler um uh, and who went to the Ducks, and, uh, and it turns out that the Ducks weren't, you know, Ryan Kessler, I don't think, played too many games on the Ducks, and he's now on LTIR. Um, and then, you know, he didn't really get, like, Luca Sabiza and Nick Bonino didn't turn out to be anything, but he did get a first-round pick for Ryan Kessler, so that's, that's impressive. Uh, JT Miller is another one. Um, who, uh, uh, so those two would be the only ones that he outright won um, was uh, was JT Miller and um, and yeah uh, uh, and and trading away Ryan Kessler. I also wanted to say, in fairness to Jim Benning, because um, like when he started off, it was in 2014, um, and the team stuck, stunk, and they were clearly in rebuilding mode. So, like, without him on the ship, they wouldn't have been able to draft Brock Besser. They wouldn't have been able to draft Elias Pettersson. They wouldn't have been able to draft um, Quinn Hughes. Um, and although, I guess, that was, like, eight, four years into his reign was for Quinn Hughes. So, maybe that's, that's, not, that's not on him. I, I don't even know. Let me look who they drafted in 2016. Um so, so maybe there is something to that, but like, you know, I, I, I think the, the fact that he was able to draft, like the Canucks have a pretty good farm system as well. Um, so he does deserve some credit, uh, from, from that standpoint. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so, so maybe there is something like that, but yes, I agree that he had to be, be gone. Oh, he drafted Oli Ulevi. Um, yeah. <laughs> Who we just traded to Florida, by the way, yep. a couple of months ago. And I, I'm just seeing that uh, the next guy drafted right after him was Matthew Kachuk. So, um, so yeah. oh. okay. So I take oh. this back. 
It's not just Matthew Kachuk. Clayton Keller went yeah, after Clayton him. Yeah, Clayton Keller went after him. Sergachev, that's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Jake Bean. Keep going Sean down McAvoy. the list. Keep going down the list. Jake Chikrin, Dante Fabro. Um, mm-hmm. Yep, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of these guys. Sam Steele, um, although he hasn't been here today. Alex DeBrincat, although now we're talking about the second round picks. Um, Jordan Cairo. Yeah, Kairou is another one. Jonathan Dahlin, although eventually he did get get Jonathan Dahlin, but not not. Um, but then he traded him away. Um, so yeah. Um, so anyways, I I, I do think that um, you know I, I I think he does like even like just like guys like Jack Roth, Rathbone and Niles uh, Hoglander who aren't even first round picks. Um, like just the fact that they could be legitimate players, um, in the NHL is, um, is like, you know, just a showing of good, uh, drafting and scouting and stuff. Although if the rumors are true that he he even had trouble with scouts and like the scouts were just drafting all these guys, then, then maybe I I shouldn't give him too much credit anyways, but, but yeah, so, yeah. I think you look at the smart GMs that get success. They're able to get success in the middle rounds. There are some of Jim Benning's middle round picks, and I'm going, I've never heard of this guy in my entire life. Right. And this is going back just a couple of years ago. I didn't even know he drafted Gustav Forsling as a fifth <laughs> round pick. I always thought he was Blackhawks property, yeah. but apparently the Canucks drafted him. Yep. And it goes. it also goes back to – prospects and how he managed them like tyler madden yep. traded to the kings for tyler to who did they not keep yeah nope. they didn't keep him yeah nope, they didn't keep um him, yeah. yeah there there were there were a couple of also bold gambles there was pod yeah, colson who, who could still work out mind you and i guess i'll cut him some slack for you levy at the time because he was a pretty good prospect yep but if you really want to achieve success at the NHL level and get to where you want to be, you have to hit on those middle round picks. And I don't think uh, Benning did that uh, well enough to keep his job. That was another factor that kind of soured him. It, it, I would definitely say free agency played a factor. At the same time, uh, trades also got the best of him. Uh, and the ability to see uh, – to seek and draft good talent in the middle rounds, uh, that also played a factor too. Yeah, I guess he he did. When you, when you consider how long he's been there, he did draft Jared McCann and Thatcher Demko his first year. I'm looking now. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's like Jared McCann's not on Vancouver anymore, and Demko. I mean, Demko is is pretty good, so he deserves some credit on that. But uh, but yeah, it is funny to see like, oh right, you just look at the Vancouver's draft list and you're like, Oh, right. They had this guy. I didn't know that. Um, okay. So, uh, so I think we both agree that this was the right move. Uh, what direction will the Canucks take? Should this be a rebuild or a contender? Um, I know Jim Rutherford is the interim GM, but I, I think that's what the same thing happened when he was in Pittsburgh, he was the interim GM. And then he's just like, Oh, I'm actually the right person for the GM job. So he's just gonna t- take this on. Um, I, I I I feel like they do, they do, obviously they have a good core people of like guys like J.T. Miller, Elias Petters, uh, Quinn Hughes, um, Connor Garland, Bo Horvat, um, and you know once Pedersen figures stuff out and Brock Besser figures stuff out, then 
watch out for the rest of the NHL. So I do think that they could salvage the season. I guess we're going hand in hand because that's the next question. But, um, but at the same time, the Canucks are in seventh in their division right now. I guess it is possible that they could make the playoffs, but then it's like you have to, uh, I, I would assume Calgary and Edmonton are making the playoffs and then maybe Anaheim slips, maybe, but then you have to worry about Vegas because they could be back and uh, who knows about San Jose, um, LA and stuff. So, so maybe this season you just take it as a lost season, try to figure out what's going on with Pedersen and Besser. And then next year you can really get going. Um, but I don't know. Bruce Boudreaux is a really good coach. So maybe maybe it's another like a St. Louis Blues 2.0 from 2019. The one thing that Bruce Boudreaux is able to do is hit it off with his new team right away. And you've mm. actually seen the first couple of games with Vancouver history starting yep. to repeat itself. You look at his first season with Washington. They went 37-17-7. and in 61 games coached by Bruce Boudreau. They finished first in their division. They lost in the first round, but that was a seven-game series. Could have gone either way. They almost edged out Philly in, in, in that nail-biter of a series. And again, that was a Washington team that hadn't sniffed the playoffs in a couple of years, had a young Alex Ovechkin, had a young Nicholas Backstrom on it, and they were able to get some impressive results with a new coach. 37 wins in 61 games is pretty darn good. Then they get 50 the next year, 108 points. Uh, they actually win a playoff series. They go to the second round, lose to Pittsburgh, which became a recurring theme. Uh, didn't happen to Boudreaux again uh, with the Capitals. He didn't uh, lose to the Penguins uh, after that. Um, he did lose to the Habs uh, the next year when his Capitals won 54 games, had probably one of the best offensive seasons in NHL history. I think they got at least 300 goals for that year, and they lost in seven games in the first round anyway. And then the next year, he got 107 points and 48 wins, and they lost uh, in the second round uh, to Tampa Bay. So that was his four seasons in Washington. Again, not going deep into the playoffs as often as he probably should, but his teams at least make the playoffs, something the Canucks have only done twice and a normal season once under Jim Benning. And the normal season they did it was Benning's first full year with the team. So you, you, you tell me where the progress is in that. Uh, with the Anaheim Ducks uh, in a lockout shortened season, they go 30, 12, and 6. Uh, that's the year after Boudreaux uh, enters the fold. They're a respectable 27, 23, and 8 before that season. Then they get 54, 51, and 46 wins under his tenure. And um, in 2014-15, they even got 11 wins. They lost in the conference finals to Chicago, so they came pretty close there. Uh, then he goes to Minnesota first year, 49 wins in 82 games, and then 45 and 82 his second year there. The one pattern that Bruce Boudreaux has had in each of the teams that he's coached or in all the teams that he's coached, he's, this would be his fourth, Washington, Anaheim, Minnesota, now Vancouver. His best players have been his, have been his best players. Brock Besser hasn't been the best player in the Canucks. Neither has Elias Pearson. That needs to change. 
And during his introductory press conference, Bruce Boudreaux, there are a lot of things that he said that I liked. He was very friendly with the media, very approachable guy, but also very astute and good at sending messages to his team, knowing what it takes to fire his team up. I don't know if it's going to be enough for the long term to get to where Vancouver is, but I think he can definitely get more out of this group than, unfortunately, Travis Green could. And the one thing that uh, he was doing was that he was chatting with guys like Peterson and Besser. And Besser in particular, it really caught my attention. He said, man, whenever we faced you guys, when I was coaching Minnesota, you would get like one to two goals a game against us. We need to get we need to get you back to shooting the puck again. Like, forget trying to create too much. Just shoot the puck on net. Aim for the net. Try to score some goals here. And I think that more than anything is what this team needs. They need to give their stars opportunities to perform, and Boudreaux needs to give these stars confidence to do what they can do. I definitely think there is upside for this team. When Thatcher Demko posts a 9.23 save percentage in an eight-game run, in which the Canucks are three and five, yep. that record can be a lot better with some elbow grease, some difference in coaching methods, some tweaks here and there. But the big war, I think, for the Canucks on top of team play is special teams. Their power play and their penalty kill. You look at the standings. Their bottom 10 in the league, their penalty kill is deep in the bottom 10 in the league. Both of those need to improve or they're not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, what's interesting about Pedersen, uh, or Peterson, I always mispronounce his name, uh, just because I'm so used to calling him Pedersen and then it's like I, I can't <laughs> change the, the pronunciations. Um, sorry, EP, if you're, if you're listening. Um, but, um, imagine if he was listening, that'd be crazy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, the interesting thing is, is that I'm looking at the lines. He's on the third line, (laughs) um, when he should be on the second or first line. I mean, I, I guess like, you know, JT Miller and Bo Horvat are doing a fine job already at center, but it is interesting to just see him as the third line center. Um, and I wonder if that's like, because he's still like not a hundred percent from that injury that he had. Um, Brock Besser, I was noticing as well. He is, yeah, he's not performing well, but he's on the second line as a right winger. The first line right winger is a Hoglander, um, who's been pretty good to be fair, but it is interesting just seeing uh, that Besser isn't even on the top line as well. So I, I do wonder like, like just just from a line standpoint of like how are they going to let uh, EP do his thing or let Besser do his own thing? But I do know that EP should be in the top six and not at the bottom six. Um, but at the same time, if you're on the bottom six, uh, if EP is on the bottom six, I mean you have a lot of depth. Um, so so that, that that is a good thing. I I I don't know. I guess there is potential that the Canucks could pull a, a St. Louis, but I, I feel like that's going to be tough. So I don't, I don't think they can salvage the season, but they might be like, um, I don't think they'll be um, like a top 10 
um, in the draft type of team. Um, they'll be like on the bubble. I think the other thing is in order to really see what the Canucks are made of, you need to give them the rest of this season and all of next season to determine what you really have with the Canucks. Just looking at Jim Rutherford's resume right now, the one knock that he had with Pittsburgh, because yes, he did win a Stanley Cup in Carolina. Yes, he won two Stanley Cups with Pittsburgh. People forget what he did after he won those two Cups in Pittsburgh. There were some questionable trades that Rutherford made, some questionable signings, i.e., uh, let's see, Erica Branson, uh, Jack Johnson, <laughs> neither of those aged well for Pittsburgh. Um, they were trading first-round picks. They were trading talented prospects just to keep that win-now window open as long as they could for Crosby and Malkin. What's the prospect pool like for Vancouver? Like, the prospect pool for Pittsburgh was one of the lowest in the league. How much lower is Pittsburgh compared to Vancouver in terms of prospects? Like, how much better is Vancouver than Pittsburgh when it comes to prospect rankings? They, the, there's no doubt there are some diamonds in the rough um, in Vancouver, but it's the same with Pittsburgh. I wouldn't say – I would probably say Vancouver's, in terms of prospect depth, they're probably like bottom 10 at best, bottom 16. But I don't think they're in the upper half in, in that regard across the entire NHL. There's a lot to be desired there. So – I don't think full rebuilds necessary, but I could see some retooling because I don't really see what else you can do to improve your team by making the team significantly better in the standings. Uh, that doesn't affect your prospect pool. Yep. Like what, what would the Canucks be willing to give up? They just gave up a top 10 pick in Dylan Gunther to get OEL and Connor Garland. Yep. A pick that I would argue they could use just as much as, all Reckman Larson in his prime and Connor Garland in his prime. Yep. So that that's that's the thing. I don't know if the Canucks have the prospect pool to create leverage to make their team better. That and it doesn't matter who's the GM if it's Jim Rutherford or somebody else, that's going to be a problem for them. Well, considering the fact that when Jim Rutherford was the GM of the Penguins, he basically just uh, traded all the top prospects that the Penguins had, and at that point, it wasn't even that great to begin with, and traded those guys uh, to help his team now. So he's very much a win-now person. So that would suggest that he is also going to be in a win-now mood um, instead of being the prospects. But yeah, when I'm looking at their prospect pool right now, I mean... Pod Colson has looked pretty good in the uh, NHL. So has Hoglander, or he's had his moments as well. But yeah, they're, like when you look at the prospect pool now, um, it is kind of, uh, they don't, don't really have that many great players. Maybe Jack Rathbone, Jet Wu, uh, Will Lockwood, uh, they could be decent. But, but yeah, it, um, it, it may not be like they have too many enticing guys. Um, that could, could make a name for themselves. Um, and I had another point too, but, and, and, oh, right. The, the fact that like, when you look at the Canucks roster right now, they have a lot of young guys still, uh, like Pedersen is only, I think he's 22 years old. Uh, so 
yeah, he's 23 years old. Quinn Hughes is 22 years old. Um, Brock Besser's 24. Bo Horvat's 26. Uh, Garland is uh, 25. So like, yeah, they, they and um, and Demko is 26. So it's like, yeah, they don't really have a deep prospect pool, but they also have um, like a lot of their core members are still pretty young. Um, so, so I think that is something that they do have going for them, um, in, in the long term. But, but yeah, I, I guess the fact that Rutherford isn't really a real rebuilding type of GM. So maybe that is, uh, signifying that they're probably going to contend. Um, all right. Uh, and then lastly, we're going to talk about the other firing that happened. And this was the Philadelphia Flyers and they fire Elaine Vigneault. Um, this, uh, this wasn't too much of a shock as well. Um, but it, uh, but yeah, in terms of a coaching job, he, um, he actually had a winning record as a coach for Philadelphia in the three years there. Uh, he went 74, 54 and 19. Um, and, uh, I, I guess that partially had to do with the fact that he played in three seasons um, where uh, he made the playoffs his first year, then uh, he came in six last year, um, and then they went eight, ten, and four in the first twenty-two games, uh, and then he just gets fired. So, um, so yeah, it's um, I, I guess it's not too much of a shock. Um, the uh, the Flyers are ten, twelve, and four right now. They are in uh, seventh place in the Metro, but they they are close to getting the wild card spot. Um, I believe they uh, actually never mind. They are six points out of the wild card spot. Um, and then a uh, Mike Yo is now the interim coach. Um, I I don't know. I I think this uh, this was kind of the right move. I think. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure if it was necessarily Vigneault's fault. Um, I think there is, I, I, I'm not sure why, I, I feel like maybe Chuck Fletcher um, is, is kind of on the hot seat. Um, it's not like Rasmus Ristolainen has been great. Keith Yandel has hardly been used, although maybe that is Vigneault's fault. Um, Ryan Ellis has been injured, so you can't really take that into account martin jones actually has, has only played four games by yeah, the way right right that well that's kind of why i was saying he's been injured for uh, for most of the season um and um and like you know actually like carter hart's been decent um not like he was you know two years ago but still like 913 save percentage and at 2.91 gaa that's still that's still not bad um, and then Martin Jones, he did start off strong, but I guess not anymore. He has a 908 save percentage and a 3.37 GAA um, in 10 games. So, so yeah, maybe there is something there. But, um, but yeah, it, it's um, and Claude Giroux has kind of had a resurgence in a way. Uh, he has 23 points in 26 games. Um, and Sean Couturier has 16 points in 26 games. Those are the two top scorers. But yeah, maybe that has more to do with it, just that they can't score 
um, and their goaltending has been average or to below average, um, and and that's a big reason why they're underperforming. But but uh, yeah, I don't know if this this coaching change will help too too much, but we'll see. If you look at goalies who have faced the most shots, Carter Hart ranks 16th with 552 shots faced. Out of the list of goalies that have faced at least 500 shots so far this season, the following goalies have played fewer games than Carter Hart. Jordan Bennington, who is currently out due to COVID protocol, Miko Koskinen. Um, Alex Nedeljkovic, who's played 16 games and actually faced 579 shots. He's 12. Jeez. Wow. Um, and 16 of those games were starts, I should say. Um, so, so in terms of in terms of starts, the only guys that have faced at least 500 shots and played fewer games than Carter Hart in terms of starts are Alex Nedeljkovic and Miko Koskinen and Jordan Bennington. So that's three goalies. The rest have played more. So when you consider that, that's an average of 32.4 shots faced per game by Carter Hart. That's way too high if, for the Flyers to be allowing that many shots. Thatcher Demko is first with 733. And it's, it's absurd. <laughs> How much rubber that guy has faced for the Canucks this year. To add to your point about scoring, just taking a look at the Flyers' schedule. All you need to look at the uh, at the Flyers is their schedule and how they've uh, ranked in terms of goal scoring. This is this is where the problem lies right here. How many games this season have the Flyers scored two goals or less in a hockey game? So let's see. There's one against the Panthers, and they lost that. So two goals or less. There's one, there's two, three, four, <laughs> five. This is gripping uh, podcast. Six, <laughs> seven. I'm doing LeBron James. I'm counting here. Okay. Um, eight. Nine, ten, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, <laughs> fifteen games right. this year that the Flyers have played. They have scored two goals or less. Yep. Fifteen games, and they've played. According to the NHL schedule at this very moment that we are recording, the Philadelphia players, uh, the, the Philadelphia Flyers have played 26 games. So 15 out of the 26 games, they scored two or less. And they probably, I, I can't give you the exact record, but they probably lost most of those games probably. where they've scored two goals or less. And that's a team that spent a lot of money to extend Joel Faraby to bring in Cam Atkinson in exchange for Jacob Voracek. Um, they're 
countless other um, things that uh, they did. They brought in Keith Yandel, as I mentioned, on on a budget. They brought in Rasmus Ristolainen. They brought in Ryan Ellis. All of these things that they did in the offseason. And it seems that they're scoring less than they were last year. Their goaltending isn't the problem. The problem last year is neither Carter Hart or Brian Elliott could stop a puck. The difference is Carter Hart and Martin Jones this year are trying their very best to keep the other teams off the scoreboard, but that's impossible to do when for over half of the games they're playing, they know that their team is scoring two goals or less and they have to make a count. Yeah. That's not sustainable at all. Even Patrick Waugh couldn't make that count for as, for as many games as he could. And he was one of the best goalies of all time, if not the best goalie of all time. So the solution is obviously to score goals. You got to find a way to score goals. So you get rid of the coach, right? Yeah. Because the flyers last year, without all these changes, they weren't doing well. You bring in these guys to hopefully change things to change the course of action. And they start off pretty well. They're getting points in at least the majority of the games they're playing. Then they hit one bad losing streak where they lose like seven in a row or eight in a row. They fire Vigneault because, well, we improved the roster to the best of our ability. This coach can't do anything with it or as, as much with it as we like. We need to make a change. If they make a change and they miss the playoffs, maybe Chuck Fletcher isn't gone this offseason. If they miss the playoffs, it wouldn't surprise me if they do. They might give him one more year. But if this goes on for long enough, it's automatically on Chuck Fletcher because there's no other scapegoat to blame. Yep. They're going to look straight at the guy that assembled this roster and they're going to hold him accountable or he's gone. Yep. Um, fly, so I was just looking here while you were counting and I probably should have spoken <laughs> while you, you were had counting. a lot of time. In that I, case. I did. I did. Um, a solid 30 seconds. If, if we have any listeners still after that, let me, let me just, uh, mention that, uh, the flyers, um, have, uh, 2.5 goals for per game that puts them 27th in the league. Uh, so that's not great. But then I was I was curious just to see how like you know the opposite of the goals against per game, and where they stack up there. Uh, your Senators are have the most goals against per game, which shouldn't be Shocker. too surprising. Yeah, I know. I was about to say that. Um, uh, with three point seven two, uh, Flyers actually are in eighth in this category. They have three point three one, so they have like, um, I guess uh, four point four. Uh, uh to ottawa senators um and so it's it's like yeah we were talking about like how they haven't scored a ton they also haven't they've also you know their defense hasn't been so great although it has been better than it was last year um it should also be mentioned the flyers have surrendered the third most shots on goal per game with 34.8 just kidding they've surrendered the most shots per game nobody is above them yeah, that's another good point too. Um, I I don't like. Yeah, they are seventh place um, right now in the division, um, but they like as opposed to the Canucks. Um, I I don't see how they can make the playoffs, um, or I don't see how the Flyers can make the playoffs um, 
if they turn it or turn around the ship because the capitals the hurricanes the rangers are all looking very very good penguins and like columbus could could make the playoffs too um and then new jersey uh could make the playoffs as well um and then you know the islanders are like five like five games um in hand with like everyone else so like yeah they've been struggling lately but I don't know. I they could they could end up making some moves later on um, in the season. So um, so yeah, maybe maybe they don't make the playoffs, but um, but yeah, I wouldn't be shocked to see them be like a lottery team um, if they don't write the ship soon. Well, just looking at their team in terms of breakdown statistics, some of the cheap depth options that they brought in have actually been pretty good. For example, Derek Broussard only averages 13.37 per game. He's actually fifth in team scoring with 11 points in 18 games, plus seven rating. That's pretty good. Keith Yandel, who we've talked about as a third-pairing defenseman most of the year, is a minus 14. He's only averaged 15.52 per game, very low for a defenseman at any at any portion of his NHL career, whether he's a rookie, whether he's a 15-year veteran. And yet his 10 assists in 26 games are good enough for seventh in team scoring. And part of the reason why the Flyers haven't really been doing well is because guys like Travis Konechny haven't performed as well. 15 points in 26 games, I think Konechny numbers-wise, can be better than that. Joel Farabee, who had a great year last year, seven goals in 21 games, only 10 points this year. Definitely not the player that uh, we saw last year. Last year, he was straight up killing it from start to finish last season. James Van Reenstijk, who's been around, averaging less than 16 minutes per game this year, only five goals, nine points in 26 games. That's awfully low. Ivan Provrov has eight points on the blue line. That's as much as Justin Braun. One of those guys is an offensive defenseman. The other is more on the defensive side of the puck. And yet they have the same amount of points in the same amount of games. That's not really great. And then you look at guys like Kevin Hayes and Ryan Ellis. They've played well in 12 combined games. (laughs) So it's pretty clear to see where the improvements need to be made there. I'm I'm just... um, I'm just left scratching my head at how a team with so much promise, as you know, I had them ranked very high in the division. Um, it, it's 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 hard to see a team with a better record than the Canucks make the playoffs because unlike the Canucks, the Canucks have a chance because they're in an easier division. Philly is arguably the toughest. Like when you look at the top five teams – The Capitals are third, the Hurricanes are fourth, and then you have the Rangers who are sixth. That's the top three teams right there. When you have a team like the Rangers that are 18-5-3, that's only good enough for sixth overall in the league and third place in the division, how you're expected to make the playoffs while two games below 500 is beyond me. And the only team that's lower than them is the Islanders, who we know their track record from previous years, they've been fading fast this year. 
but they saw the makings of a pretty good team, a character team to turn things around. I don't really know if Mike Yo uh, can do that. And I think I, I think there are only a select few coaches that can really get the most out of this team. Mm. I'll let you know the first year, obviously, it was great, but I don't really I don't really see how this team can formulate a successful, consistent winning culture when they've gone through how many coaches in the past five or six years, there was Dave Haxtell. Um, Dave yeah. Haxtell is the most recent one. And yeah, I, actually, actually, let, let, <laughs> let me, uh, Google search. Oh. <laughs> Sorry to I'll do let another stall. Google search. But I, I can, I can fill in this stall this time. Um, Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I um, in terms of coaches, in ter- like I'm not sure if Mike Yo is the right guy. He is an interim coach. The only one that oh, there's two guys that I could think of in terms of like being the head coach and might make a difference. One is John Tortorella. Um, yeah. And but like you know personally, I think that would be great just because uh, it would keep him away from ESPN and spewing uh, these terrible takes um, on ESPN. But um, also, I, I do think that he is a great defensive coach, um, and that's something that the Flyers have been struggling with. And and maybe you know it, like to Tort's credit, even though he does have like an archaic view of thinking about ho- hockey. Um, he does, you know, he does win games and it's just like the focus isn't on scoring. It's all about defense. And if there's anyone that can make uh, a team be structured, it would be the Flyers. Um, or that needs that, um, it would be the Flyers. Um, and then the other one I was thinking of was uh, David Quinn. Um, I know that he uh, he hasn't been um, too, like, you know, he was okay as a coach in the Rangers, but... Um, but yeah, I, I do think that he does deserve another shot. Um, albeit <laughs> I, I do remember that, uh, Akeem Aliu had this tweet saying like old, like, you know, they bring old dinosaurs out and then they bring in new dinosaur or like old dinosaurs come back in. So, so maybe we should like, you shouldn't do a retread and just bring in some other coaches that haven't even had a shot yet. Um, so, so maybe there is something to that. But I do think that of the coaches that are available, John Tortorella makes the most sense. Okay, so since the start of the 2013-14 season, the Philadelphia Flyers, counting Mike Yo, who's the interim coach, have had six different faces on the bench since the start of 2013-14. Pierre Laviolette was there for a hot minute, and then he wasn't. Craig Berube took over in October of 2013, lasted until April of 2015. Craig Berube coached seven playoff games for the Philadelphia Flyers. Then the door revolves to Dave Haxtell, hired in May of 2015. He's there until December of 2018. Even though Ron Haxtell wanted to keep him, had to make a change. He coached the Flyers to 12 playoff games. Scott Gordon's the interim coach from December 2018 to April of 2019. They go 25, 22, and 4 under his watch. He has no playoff games, obviously, because he wasn't around long to do anything with that. Yep. Then we go to Alain Vigneault, April 2019 to this December. 
He coaches 16 playoff games, which Philly is 10 and 6 in that time. A lot better record than Barube and Haxtell. But even still, the Flyers are on track to miss the playoffs this year, and they missed the playoffs last year, coming off a very good season, a very good first season under Elaine Vigneault. And then you have Mike Yo, the interim coach. So that alone right there says a lot. The fact in a span of seven or eight years, you have six different coaches on your bench, that doesn't necessarily scream sustainability if you're trying to coach this team. At what point do you start to wonder if it's the way the team's constructed, if you have the right players around you to build with them? And now I think more than ever is the time the Flyers should be asking, we'd love to keep this team together, but where we want to go, how many of these guys are going to get us there? Right. Do we need to start making some trades? Are guys like Travis Konechny going to get it done? Are guys like, um, I don't know, to to name one example, Ivan Provorov, is, is he going to be the defenseman that we're looking for? Those are the kind of questions, especially for a team nearing the cap, those are the questions they need to be asking as we start to see Claude Drew entering his prime, as we start to see Carter Hart getting into his prime years. You need to figure out who's in it for the long haul and who needs to be traded for parts. Wait, did you just say... Because they can't be spinning the tires like this. Did you just say that Claude Giroux is in his is reaching in his prime? He's like he's over thirty. No, I old. said Carter Hart was re- oh, just Carter reaching. Hart. His prime. I thought I you were Carter saying Hart. Claude Giroux. Okay. <laughs> Claude Giroux, by the way, is a pending free agent. I don't know yeah. what they do with him, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I would assume they keep him because he he's like basically the heart of the Flyers. But yeah, um, but yeah, I guess it would definitely speak volumes if they didn't, though. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I don't know if they necessarily rebuild because I feel like, I don't know what they do, but they are definitely in like a bad spot because I wouldn't consider them contenders. I wouldn't consider them like rebuilding either. So they're just in that middle spot and that's the worst position you want to be in, in the NHL. But, um, would you like, I, I don't know if you, you didn't really react to my John Tortorella, um, suggestion uh, what what is your thoughts on the coach or even if it is John Tortorella uh who are you thinking if it's not Mike Yo who who do you think it would be I think John Tortorella is probably the guy that could have the quickest ability to turn the ship around and get everyone on the same page because speaking of guys like Bruce Boudreaux who have immediate impacts with their teams Tortorella is another one of those coaches the thing is his style doesn't vibe well with every single player and there are talented players on philadelphia's offense that won't be able to uh thrive at their full potential or they won't be able to grasp tortorella's style they'll fall out of favor and a change of scenery will be needed right but the thing is is that tortorella does win games and that's what the flyers do need there's no denying that he wins games and that's what the flyers do need but yeah it's it's definitely but maybe um, but yeah, I do see what you're saying. It's not like every coach uh, or every player gets along with him. So, um, so maybe not. Um, yeah, we'll see. Um, okay, that about does it for us here at Lay Some Up. Um, 
it's been fun. Um, you can follow us at on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcast. Um, you can also um, follow us on Twitter at Lace Up Podcast. Our Facebook is Lace Them Up. That's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll chat again in episode 299 of the Lace Them Up Podcast.